0: Good morning, church. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, Good to be with you, Bloomington Campus, all the people who are watching online who are lucky enough to be on vacation. We wish that we were you. So, um... I, I, this time of year, uh, last few years, I've had a, a, a preaching slot in July, and I feel like in some ways, I'm the token guy to remind you guys of what is about to happen in our town, because I serve as, as a campus minister here, I work with a group called Encounter, and I need to remind you that in four weeks, uh, Target and Meyer and Walmart are going to be hard places to be, okay? This is your annual reminder that if you got big trips to make, you got four weeks to do it, and then the students are going to be back in town. And I get excited about that. I want to remind you of a passage that, that our staff prays, and I know other campus ministry staff pray too, and that is in Matthew 9, where there's this moment where Jesus is confronted with the crowds, like the crowds of like we will see the crowds of college students. And it says, Jesus looked out on those crowds and he had compassion. I don't usually meet crowds with compassion, okay? But Jesus did why? Because it says that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And that's the moment in Matthew 9 where Jesus says, oh, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers into the harvest field. So here's what I'm asking you, Eastview Church. As you see the crowds in four weeks, would that just be a reminder to you to pray, to pray for the campus, to pray for the college students? When you see young people zipping by on loud motorcycles or you have to wait in long lines, at the Meyer checkout, the self-checkout, let that be a reminder to you to pray for that wave of students who's coming in, because the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ needs to be seen on campus, and we got a whole new wave of people coming in soon that need it, okay? That's my reminder for you. All right, so as I get toward John 7 this morning, I want to start with a conversation that I had a decade ago with somebody, uh, my memory isn't great, but there are these certain little things that stick with you, you know, and this is one of those conversations that did. I had a friend uh, named Jordan Jeffers. Some of you will know Jordan and Madeline, uh, amazing people. Jordan had decided that he wanted to write a book, actually the first of a trilogy. Um, and, and this was, this, what he wanted to write was epic fantasy, like think, think Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. That style was spiritual, allegory built in, and he did it. He, uh, and actually, over the last 10 years, he's written all three books, and so he finished this trilogy, but when he finished the first one, he had asked me to be a part of a, a small team to just, re- I wasn't really an editor, but someone who just kind of read his rough draft and give feedback to that, and so after he finished this, this first book, I sat down with Jordan, and this isn't an ad for his book, but it is called The Towers, and you can buy it on Amazon, okay, but I sat down with Jordan, and it was amazing what he wrote was amazing, which is really good because if a friend of yours writes a book and you're supposed to give feedback and it's bad, that's a really hard meeting to be like, man, I'm sorry, the last few years have been a waste. Okay, but we sat down and I, I'm a, I love to read. I, I studied English in college, like I love literature. And so it was so different to be able to sit down with the author and ask questions. Hey, when you wrote this character, were you kind of like, is this what you were thinking and how they interacted with this? And to be able to tell him what the important parts were to me, to ask him what the important parts were to him, I wasn't ready for this question though. In that meeting, he looked at me and said, hey, did you notice the bugs? And I was like, the bugs? Yeah, did you notice the bugs in the book? I said, no, Jordan, I didn't notice the bugs. And he said, well, there are just a few, I mean, he said, it's really subtle, but there are a few important points in the book where I dropped some of those in, or they had a role in the book, and it was, it was super subtle. I didn't anticipate that many people would pick up on that. And I thought about that conversation for a really long time afterwards, because that, I, I realized that in my mind, there were these, a, a ton of sentences in any book that are just fluff, that you race past to get to the action, you know? that you want to get it to where the characters are doing the important stuff. They weren't accidents to him. There wasn't a sentence in that book that he had not intentionally placed there for purpose. And that was like a spiritual allegory for me walking away from that conversation. I wondered to myself, leaving that conversation with Jordan, man, I wonder how many moments in my day the author has placed that I just race right through thinking, oh, this is filler for the important things. I wonder how many conversations with my kids I view as something that it's just, it's filler until we get to the really important moments. I wonder when they look back if they might see some of those moments as really, really important. Now, why do I bring that up this morning? Well, because we're going to start walking toward John 7, and I love the gospel of John. I reference it all the time. I really do. I mean, think about it, you guys. John 1. John 1. How do we even start? The logos, the word, the word in the beginning, in the very beginning, before we understood that there was a beginning, there was was truth and life and knowledge. All of this stuff represented in John 1.14, the word became flesh. It, It tabernacled with us, dwelled with us. Jesus himself representing all of that stuff came to live with us. That's just how we start. John 3, you got Nicodemus Sneaking in. He's one of the, the religious leaders. He's not supposed to be with Jesus because that might get him in trouble in his circles. So he sneaks in at night to have a conversation with Jesus. That's crazy. That's Hollywood kind of stuff right there. John 4. Jesus reveals that he's the Messiah. To who? Well, maybe one of the most the least influential people on the planet. This woman in Samaria at a well. John 4. We keep walking forward. John 8, before Abraham was, I am. That's where Jesus completely messes with our understanding of the space-time continuum. John 11, you get to the point where he raises Lazarus from the dead. John 13, the God of the universe, what does he do? Stoops down and washes the disciples' feet unthinkable. John 14 to 16, Jesus's last teaching with his disciples here on earth. John 17, he prays for the disciples and for you and me. Did you know that you got prayed for specifically in scripture by Jesus in John 17, for those who hadn't seen but will believe. That's you and that's me. Then you get to John 20, the foot race to the tomb between Peter and John. You get to John 21, which is one of my personal favorites. You've got Peter having breakfast on the beach with the resurrected Jesus, just this tender moment where Jesus reinstates Peter, because you remember that Peter had just denied him, and the resurrected Jesus goes out of his way to have breakfast on the beach with Peter. Unbelievable, you guys. That's like the best of hits in my brain of the gospel of John. I love it. You know what isn't in that list? John 7. It's where we are today. There are seven I am statements in John. We're in an I am series, not in John 7. All different kinds. Of, I've had probably four or five conversations, one of them this morning, where somebody would say, hey, what are you preaching next week? I heard you preaching. And I'd say, John 7. And they'd be like, I think I know John 7. I'd be like, I, I don't think you do. <laughs> and they'd say, no, that's where Jesus feeds the five. Th-. I'm like, nope. I am statement? Nope. None of that. Well, <clears throat> I want you to remember this morning that John is writing this as an old man. And the 52 verses that we have in this chapter are not an accident. They're not fluff. Chad was pray- you know, when we, we met this morning to pray, and Chad said, you know, I'm a guy who writes in the margins of my Bible. I don't have much written for John 7. It's like, I know. <laughs> I know you don't. But here's what I want you to hear. I wonder, I wonder if you get to run into the Apostle John in heaven and you say, hey, thank you for penning those words for us to understand the life of Christ, I kind of wonder if he'll wink at you and say, did you notice chapter 7? Did you catch the bugs? It's not insignificant. It's not insignificant at all for us. And it reveals something about the nature of Scripture, too. Excuse me. Um, And if you are not familiar, these two verses would be great verses for you to memorize. Okay, the nature of Scripture. Second Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And the Hebrews author tells us that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. John 7 is not fluff. John 7 is living and active and surgical, and it is built this morning to help prepare you for what you need to think about in the journey of faith. It's not fluff. And so I want you to come to this text this morning with that expectation that the God of the universe, the author himself, has dropped these verses into our lives this morning with intentionality. So let's approach the text this morning with that kind of expectation. Let's pray together as we do that. Heavenly Father, I believe that all 52 verses of these matter to you, and you've revealed something to us in them. And so I pray that you, Holy Spirit, uh, would break them open for us. Uh, Say what it is you want to say and move the way you want to move, Holy Spirit. In your name and sacrifice, we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I'm going to start off this morning uh, Given you some backstory, our, our source text, our core text that we're going to be in starts in verse 25. But I need to jump back in the chapter a little bit to give you a taste of where we're headed. So, in the, the if I jump all the way back to the beginning of the chapter, the first two verses say, "After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand." Okay. So first of all, when you think about Israel. Uh, I mean, this is really imperfect math, okay? But if you think about, like, the state of Illinois split down the middle vertically, so like half of the state of Illinois vertically, you got sort of the size of the area that we're talking about in Israel at the time. And at the top, you have Galilee. Jesus was from southern Galilee. In the middle, you have Samaria, okay? And in the bottom, you have Judea, where Jerusalem was at. And so, Jesus is sort of steering clear of Jerusalem and Judea because he's gotten a little more famous, and some of the religious leaders don't like that attention, and so they're looking to kill him. So, he's staying in this northern area. That's why it says he's not going about in Judea. And it says the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Now, the Jewish people had seven feasts that they were given uh, to to celebrate every year, all the way back from the time of Moses. Moses. And this is so important as backstory, you guys, because for us, we we don't understand this tradition very well. But this has been going on century after century after century. This, This was built into their community rhythm. Four of those feasts were in the spring, around where we celebrate Easter, and three of those feasts, they were all tied together, those feasts, and three of them are also tied together in the fall, late September, early October, probably. Okay, so... During that, this time, these are the fall feasts, and the three fall feasts that they have are the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Booths or booths. It's also the Feast of Tabernacles, So we'll just go with that. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know how to pronounce the other one. So in this Feast of Tabernacles, here's what happens: For seven days hear me in this: you build a fort in your front yard that you live in, your whole family, for seven days. Every kid's dream, all right? And every parent's nightmare. And everybody did it. Imagine your neighborhood if everybody built a fort this week, and you all had to live in it, eat in it, do everything in that fort for an entire week. You'd just be listening to your neighbors, like, complain about their kids and their kids complaining about bedtime. That's what you'd be hearing outside. Can you imagine the solidarity of everybody doing that together? That was a part of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what they did. And in the midst of that, if you want to learn more about that, I think Leviticus 23 is the place that you go. This is to remind them that they had to live in temporary shelters when they left Egypt as a part of the great exodus in the desert. So it was a celebration of remembering what their ancestors had done and how God was faithful in that promise. And in Leviticus 23, God gives them instructions to do that. So this Feast of Tabernacles was also sometimes called, and I know I'm spending a long time But Jesus is going to draw on this imagery later, and I want you to hear it. It was also called the Festival of Water and Light because there were traditions developed where in the evening they would light the temple, and everyone would gather around to see that. And in the morning, a priest would take a pitcher, and he would walk about 500 yards down to the pool of Siloam. And he would dip that that pitcher in the water, and there would be Lots of people following him there, so a celebration and songs and people celebrating as he walked 500 yards with that picture back to the temple, and he would pour that out on the altar. That would happen in the mornings. So morning and evening, they had these special celebrations that were a part of that. Now, you say, wait a minute, was that the, was that the pool where Jesus healed somebody a couple of chapters ago, like John 5? No, that was Bethesda. That's on the opposite side of the city. This was the main water source, the, the pool of Siloam for the city of Jerusalem, and it been around since way before even Hezekiah, okay? So this is happening every evening. Every evening, this priest would go down. He would actually quote Isaiah twelve three. therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. And then he would walk that back to the temple and pour that out. So this is the context. Everybody's living in tents for a week, And the people who are in Jerusalem are watching the priests do this in the mornings and and them light up the temple in the evenings. All right. So let me jump to verses 10 through 16. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. So he does go from Galilee to Judea, to Jerusalem in Judea. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Pay attention to that line. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning whom he has, when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Now, here's another thing I want to grab onto this morning. That language, and we'll see more of it soon, John uses a lot. It's like a holy redirect. Jesus is doing this constantly. When people give him attention, he redirects to the Father. Oh, this isn't my teaching. It's the one who sent me. He who sent me. He who sent me. He who sent me. 38 times in this gospel, that's used. He who sent me. I also want you to notice that line. There was much muttering about him among the people because they can't agree on who Jesus is. Some think he's a cult leader, some think he's a great teacher, others don't think anything at all. And we're going to see more of that as we move into our core text, starting in verse 25. So I'm going to keep going. Some of the people of Jerusalem, let me see if I got it here. There we go. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? and here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Now, you Bible people out there might say, well, they're getting it wrong here. Remember that Christmas moment with Herod where they they search the scriptures and they find Micah 5.2 that says that, that Jesus will be from Bethlehem? Yeah, they're confused. And actually, they'll contradict themselves in our passage here today. Moving on. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true. Hear that language? He who sent me. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I mean, in other words, they've seen the miracles, they've heard the reputation. So they're saying, if there is a Messiah, could he possibly be doing more than this Jesus has already done for us? So the, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. I'm sorry I keep interjecting here, but as we go through the text, I want you to understand Jesus is speaking physically here, not not spiritually. We have plenty of other texts in Scripture where spiritually Jesus is saying, if you seek me, you can find me. Like, I want to be found by you. Uh, he, He tells us in another place that he goes to prepare a place for us. In other words, that we can go where he is. So he's speaking physically, in other words. I'm about to go somewhere that you can't physically come with me. This is confusing again. So the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? The dispersion is just a fancy word for all these pockets of Jewish people that were living in different places among the Greeks. So kind of like a missionary journey. Does Jesus plan on going on a missionary journey? Where is he going to go? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? And on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. I need you to remember that everyone at this feast was very familiar with what was happening with water. Every morning, that priest would go down, and he would go to the pool of Siloam, and he would dip that in. And so they had all, they'd seen this. They knew this. This was the water source for Jerusalem. It was actually connected to Gihon Spring, which is about another 500 yards away, and Hezekiah built a tunnel through the rock that connected to him. And so when Jesus is saying living water, when he's talking about wells of living water, he is grabbing, Zach talked about this last week, he's taking something that they see and they know, and he's grabbing a spiritual truth and holding it up for the people to see, saying, you know what this is. All right, where was I at? When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet, and others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem? Wait a second. At the beginning of our passage, they said they didn't even know where the Scripture said. It's not hard for crowds to be confused, friends. Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came... To the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. And the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? So even the officers who were sent to arrest Jesus listened to his teaching and were like, Huh, we can't figure this out. Who is this guy? And go back to the Pharisees empty handed and they say, You didn't arrest him? No one's ever spoken like this guy. (laughs) Do you want to be followers of his too? Now, As we get to our text, all good Bible study begins with observation. So what do we see? What do we see in the text? Well, first of all, we we see a lot of confusion. Some people think he's a good man. That's verse 12. 14, he's an amazing teacher. Verse 12, cult leader. Verse 26, leader of a rebellion. Verse 30, criminal. Verse 31 and 40, some people believe he was sent by God there's a huge difference in the crowd over that question, who is Jesus? What is this man's identity? That's the source of the confusion. Who is he? The second thing i would noticed just observationally in this text, there's repetition of the word seek. It's the Greek word zeteo, all over the place, all over the place. Let me me give you a couple examples. The Jewish leaders are seeking to kill him. Jesus talks about the crowd seeking to honor themselves. Verse 18 says that Jesus is seeking the glory of the Father who sent him. Not unusual for there to be confusion when everybody's seeking something different. That makes sense, doesn't it? Third thing I would observe is that we see a lot of questions Uh, A lot of question marks in this passage. How is it this man has learning when he's never studied? Isn't this the man they sought to kill? Do the authorities know this is the Christ? It just keeps going. There are tons of questions from the crowd in here. So why does John give us 52 verses of a confused crowd asking questions that can't figure out who Jesus is? Why? Well, this is the mission statement of John. He tells us later in John 20... Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, parentheses chapter 7 is written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. He writes about a confused crowd because we are a confused crowd. John knows that we need to struggle with that question of who is Jesus And some of you who've been followers of Jesus for a long time, you may think, oh, Ben, this is kind of kindergarten stuff, isn't it? No, because that's the question you are still wrestling with. Who is Jesus in my life? Who is Jesus in my family? What does that look like for me? What authority does he have? Where is he drawing me? How do I understand the kingdom as Jesus has presented it? And so this morning, one of the things that I want to do with you quickly, you see these four stools behind me, I want to talk about four chairs that I often see students in. When I look out on the crowd on campus, I want to talk about four different chairs that I see. And I I don't think that this crowd is much different than campus, honestly. And I think you may resonate with some or all of these chairs. And so when I get to the beginning, and I'm going to ask for a little bit of grace this morning because I'm going to have to speak in stereotypes. And your journey is far more complex than I'm able to present. There's There's this beautiful mystery in how God meets you and how he draws you, and how you respond to him that I don't even fully understand. But I I do want to speak in clarity this morning about what a journey of faith often looks like. And so in this, this first chair that we have over here, I think sometimes we find someone who may be skeptical, or someone who may be indifferent, or someone who may be avoidant, The the indifference is, this doesn't even matter, does it? Whether I believe in Jesus, this question of Jesus, I'm going to wake up tomorrow, I need to make money, I need to to have friendships, those are the things that matter. Is is this even relevant, the conversation that we're having? There's the skeptic who says, you know what, there are a bunch of things about Christianity or about the Bible or the way that church works that I just don't, I don't think are true or I don't understand or they seem like contradictions to me. Or you have the avoidant who've been hurt, legitimately hurt by the church by other Christians, by people who've used the name of Jesus. And so they say, I don't want anything to do with that. I've been there. I've walked down that road. And if any of those describe you, can I just tell you this? I'm so glad you're here. Truly. I'm so glad that you can hear my voice this morning. I really am. To the skeptic, can I tell you that you don't have to turn your brain off to come to faith? Really, some of the questions that you have are answerable in faith. Probably not all, not all philosophical questions could I answer for you and resolve easily for you, but there are some that can. It is worth asking those questions, and it's okay that you have doubts. It is. It's okay that you ask that question, who is Jesus, while you're you're holding difficulty there. That's where I come from, and I resonate with you and still find myself in this chair from time to time. For the avoidant, For those of you who've been hurt by church, can I just tell you this? I'm sorry. I don't say that flippantly. I mean that. I know that that in the name of Jesus, great harms have been done, but can I tell you that he hates that more than you do? He cares about his sheep and his children. To the indifferent, can I just tell you, if you're sitting in this chair, because it just seems like, why is this even relevant, this conversation? Why is my family drag me to church every Sunday? Listen, it might not seem relevant to you right now, but it will. Because the question that we're asking is, does life have meaning? Does life have purpose? Is there hope that exists in the universe? And that may not be relevant tomorrow, but there is a tomorrow that it will be relevant to. And I pray that you ask these questions, this who is Jesus question before that day that it's incredibly relevant, where you experience a kind of crisis where you realize you do not have hope or purpose or meaning or lean into that. But again, if this is you, I am so glad you're here. Well, what's chair two? Chair two is curious or seeking. And there's a barrier that sits in between this that often is trust or trusting a Christian. Oftentimes, the places where a skeptic will find a safe place to begin to ask questions is to begin to trust a Christian who will actually listen to those questions and give space for that to happen. Or for someone who's avoidant to begin to trust a follower of Jesus enough to say, hey, I've been hurt. And someone can help unpack that and minister and shepherd to that hurt. Or someone who's indifferent can begin to trust somebody and actually have the conversation. There's a conversational bridge that sits between these two things that says, no, there is something deeper. There is meaning and purpose in this life. And so we get to this space of trying to find some of those answers. And this question is still the same. Who is Jesus? Who is he? Well, there comes a point at which, well, and let me say this, the barrier that sits in between these two seats is an openness to change. Because there is a point at which if I'm curious and I'm seeking and I realize that there are answers in this chair, that the God of the universe loves me and there's something in my soul that I just can't fix on my own, there's a point here where I bend my knee to Christ and I say, you know what? I'm not in charge of my life anymore. You are. You're the one who's in charge of my life. I surrender my life to you, Jesus. I need that living water. I need your love and your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness. And I will give my life over to you. And so this is a surrendered life sitting in this chair. My life is surrendered to Christ. You say, well, Ben, how could there possibly be a fourth chair? <laughs> like, what, what are we even talking about at this point? Well, Jesus alludes to it. In our text, um, years and years ago, <clears throat> I went to a place in uh, near Eminence, Missouri. Uh, I used to take a group of college students every year down there for a retreat. Amazing! We would do spelunking and. Uh, canoeing and orienteering and rock climbing and all kinds of, of crazy stuff. And I, I grew up in central Illinois, friends. Like, I grew up in the woods, and so I've, I've got a lot of hours floating in the mighty Mackinac River, okay? Like, that's, that's my stomping grounds. I know how water works in the Midwest. My Midwestern brain could not conceive some of the stuff that I got to see in Missouri. Actually, where we were at, it was Missouri, okay? it was South, south Missouri. You can't call it Missouri there. It's a different place. And one of the places that we went was Blue Spring. That's a picture of Blue Spring. It doesn't look like, I mean, I I know it's blue. That's kind of impressive. But it just sort of looks like a still pond, right? It's 300 and some feet deep. You could could take the Statue of Liberty and, and drop it in and her torch would disappear. That's how deep that is. The visibility in it is 50 feet. You can see 50 feet down into the water. But that's not even the impressive part. The crazy thing that my brain could not conceive was that little still pond, if you look to the right, just becomes a river, feeds the current river, 90 million gallons a day just come out of that hole from I don't even know where. I don't understand how it works. I only understand groundwater in central Illinois, but that is not what is happening here. And not far away from that is Alley Mill Spring, which is doing about the same, like 80 million gallons of water a day. My brain can't even conceive it. But that's what this looks like. Do you remember in John 4, when Jesus is talking to the Sumerian woman and they're at a well, and he says, everyone who drinks this water Will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up in eternal life. You guys, I lived in this chair for a very long time. I think it's the place that most of us start in the journey of faith, a surrendered life. And I view church and I view the experience as me receiving God's grace. And there's, it's beautiful. Uh, where else would we begin? But Jesus reference, references something with the Sumerian woman. And then in John 7, he says the exact same thing, I think. Yes, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the spirit. This chair is a space where you are surrendered to Jesus. But out of your heart is flowing 90 million gallons of God's grace every day that other people are drinking out of the well that you provide. And I think sometimes we preach a gospel that is too shallow. I think sometimes we focus so much on people receiving the gift of God and receiving his grace and receiving his mercy and receiving his peace and receiving all of the things that are absolutely true, but it's incomplete. You weren't built just to be receivers of grace. Grace doesn't work that way. You weren't built just to be receivers of forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't work that way. You were built to be a living well with 90 million gallons of peace coming out of you every day. I don't say that to shame you, because you, if you're like me, you're like, I don't feel 90 million gallons of peace. No, every morning I get to wake up and I say, hey, God, because you have given to me, I get to... Because your mercies are new today, I get to give mercy. Because your peace is new on me today, I get to give peace. I'm a giver of the things that you give me. And we never really fully grow into this chair, ever. We can try, but I mean... And this isn't really our work. It's the Holy Spirit's work in us. It's the Galatian 5 fruit of God developing all of these things in us every day. Do you identify with any of these chairs? Because I got to tell you, I identify with all four, depending on the moment that you grab me. (laughs) Depending on the moment that you talk to me, I find myself in one of these chairs, and that's okay. One of the beautiful things about this fourth chair, friends... The journey that we have been on with Love McLean County, this idea of what it means for us to pour ourselves out, it's not just a corporate vision. In other words, it's not just for us as a body, it's not just for us to, to create a budget line item. It asks the, it's not just for the food pantry. The question is how does God want to use your dining room table? How does God want to use your neighborhood? How does God want to use you personally, not just corporately, but but personally you? How does God want to use your family? Because it's not just about McLean County. And this fall, we're going to lean into this idea that's larger of just what it means to love my community. What does it mean to love my community? We have a ton of impact. There are thousands of us. Can you imagine the impact if my table was used as a living well? if I had the grace to give everybody that was around me. Can you imagine, Eastview, the impact that we could have in this town? We will. By the Spirit of God, we will. As we continue to lean in and become wells of living water. I want you to see each of these chairs this morning. Again, if you're in this chair and you say, Ben, I'm chair one. That that feels kind of shaming (laughs) that I'm right at the beginning. Listen, all I want you to hear this morning is that there's an invitation there's an invitation in each one of those places. If you find yourself as a skeptic, again, I'm so glad you're here. Jesus isn't forcing your hand. It's not, he doesn't have your arm up behind your back. There's an invitation to be curious. There's an invitation to ask questions. If that's where you're at, there is an invitation to surrender your life to him, to receive God's love and his grace and his forgiveness and his mercy, to fill a hole in your chest that you can't fill on your own. If you are a follower of Jesus, maybe you've lived in this chair for 40 years and there's an invitation that Jesus gives that says, you know what? It's true that you are a receiver of my mercy, but that's not where it ends. You won't feel a connection to my purpose until you understand yourself also as a giver. There's 90 million gallons of grace waiting to go out of you every day if you're willing to give it. And right at the center of all of these questions that we're asking in chapter 7 is the question, who is Jesus? What has he done? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean for my kids? What does that mean for my employees and my workplace? And no matter where you're at on that journey, I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here. Now, this morning, you know it's Baptism Sunday. And again, that's an invitation and so if you're sitting in this room, maybe the Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart. Your heart's beating a little fast because you're like, oh, I don't know. It feels like the Holy Spirit's talking to me a little bit in this moment. There is no emotional pressure for you to act in the moment. But I want you to hear the invitation that our Heavenly Father gives to you. There'll be people down here in front. There'll be people in the front in the balcony to pray with you if you have questions this morning. If you identify yourself as one of the avoidant and you say, you know what, it's time for me to put this pain out in front of me and actually talk about it and deal with it. Or you've been indifferent and you say, "It's well, it's time for me to actually think about this and process this for a little bit. There are people to do that with this morning. But I love this quote by Howard Thurman who says, what the world needs is people who have come alive. And that's what that chair is. Friends, you were designed to be a living well. And I don't have to truly give an invitation this morning because Jesus did it in John 7, and it's simply this. Anyone thirsty, come and drink, and out of your heart will flow rivers of living water.